0: Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, We are going to be in John 9 today, um, and we will be very heavily in our Bibles. And so if you were not able to snag one on the way in, uh, we've got some ladies walking down um, the sides. And so if you would like to have a Bible uh, during the teaching, just throw your hand up, and we will make sure to get one to you guys. And also just for future, there are always Bibles right next to the door as you guys come in, so feel free to snag one. And if... You do not personally own a Bible. Consider this our gift to you. You can take that Bible or take a Bible home for a friends. We have many of them, and we are always in a fan of giving away the Word of God to people. So a few weeks ago, Ann and I had, my wife had the privilege of going up uh, to visit um, her family that lives in the Portland area. Uh, but it was a unique opportunity for us because uh, she had family in town from California, And we've been married for two years, and having large families, you don't always get to meet everybody, or just kind of the the meet and greet at the wedding of, hi, how are you, is about the extent of it. And so it was fun to get to meet um, some aunts and uncles and cousins that I have never met before. Uh, But kind of the joy of having some of these family reunion-type opportunities is they always end up bringing up stories of the past, um, stories of grandparents or stories of cousins, and it's fun to just get to sit in and hear uh, the memories as people reflect. Um, And and I recently heard a story during this time about uh, one of my, I guess, new grandparents, um, one of Anna's grandpas. uh, When it came to time to get his driver's license, uh, he's He's getting older in life, or he was getting older in life at the time, and so obviously the process of getting a driver's license is not as easy um, because they need to make sure that you're still capable um, of of driving on the roads at a safe, safe opportunity. And so he had the dreaded job of going to an optometrist to get an eye exam to make sure that he actually can see uh, that he will be capable of driving and keeping people safe. The thing is, with her grandpa, he had one eye that was, was in good condition um, and one eye that, that, was, that was a little rough. Um, and so he enters into the exam office, you know, and gets through the spiel. And you guys know, it always is the huge letter at the top and then slowly gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so her grandpa comes up and for some reason they allowed him to use his hand instead of like the little, little cup thing. And so he, he places his hand over his bad eye and just reads off everything perfectly doing great. Um, and then it comes time to, to do the bad eye. And so he, he steps up, and again, he's using his own hand. And so he comes like this, and as, as the doctor looks away, he just kind of goes, okay. <laughs> and, just, and just reads through, and, and, and surprising enough, somehow the doctor does not notice that, <laughs> passes him, and he's able to drive. So when you're in California, watch out, because I guess it's really easy to get your driver's license renewed. Um, you see, in, in this, mo- this morning, uh, our, our text that we get to dive into uh, is, is, in a sense, another kind of eye exam. Um, it's, it's another time for us to kind of step into the doctor's office, per se, and, and look and say, okay, do, do, I, do I see or, or do I not? Um, but, but the difference between this exam and the one that Anna's grandpa went through is he was able to, to cheat on that exam to get through. You see, the exam we look at today, there's no cheating involved, because it's not, do I have good eyesight or do I have bad eyesight, but it's actually, can I see or am I blind? Today, we step into a story of Jesus diving directly into that question, And so we're gonna jump into to chapter nine. And it's important to know kind of the context leading to this encounter with Jesus. We we step into the story and right away we kind of tell we don't know exactly where the location of this interaction is. But we do know, based on looking at chapter eight, that the Feast of Tabernacles um, has just kind of concluded or is concluding in Jerusalem. And the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast. Uh, where where everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate, um, ultimately, the Exodus experience and the wandering in the desert for 40 years, yet God's provision through all of that, through getting them across the Red Sea into the promised land that they so longly waited for. <clears throat> and if you guys know anything of the, the Exodus experience, um, as they wandered the desert for 40 years, uh, each day, they were, they were led, and each night they were led. And fire was a huge, huge component of that experience. And so it was the same with the Feast of Tabernacle as well, that each day they would have four huge bowls, like 150 logs in these bowls, 150 feet in the air in Jerusalem around the temple. And so light just magnified the beauty of the temple of God, the tabernacle of God. It illuminated the temple, it illuminated Jerusalem. And it's important for us as readers to take that mindset into the text today, that God is already setting us up, Jesus is already setting us up to realize light plays a huge component in this story and light ultimately plays a huge component in our lives. Uh, if you guys have the branch notes on that back sheet, it also kind of shows the progression uh, that we'll be going through. And the first, the first section that we're going to look at um, is just the actual miracle itself, that Jesus heals a man born blind. Okay, in chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. And as he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? For a lot of us in this room, that probably seems like an odd question, uh, because we do not associate sins of parents or sins of children in the womb with different disabilities nowadays. But that was a very common thought uh, in kind of ancient Israel, and I, I know there are still some that hold to that today. Um, but, but Jesus directly draws their attention away from that, says, let's not focus, let's not focus on that reality because there's, there's not truth in that statement. But he says in verse three that Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, Jesus says, no, this man's blind, yes, but it's not because of something that his parents have done, It's not directly related to something that he's done in the womb, but it's actually so that the glory of God may be magnified today. This man is blind so that he might bring glory to God. And then Jesus shows us exactly how that happens. He said, we must work, in verse 4, work the works of him who sent me while it is day, So Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. He said it in chapter 8, and he says it again now. And then he proceeds to actually illustrate this point by giving light, by giving sight to a man that was born blind. And so we see Jesus spits on the dirt and puts mud on the guy's eyes, which if I were the guy that was blind, I would not prefer that. But. If I'm getting sight by the end of it, I will take anything thrown on my face so that I can actually see. But at this point as a reader, we ought to be asking, well, why why does Jesus use mud in this story at all? And and why does Jesus send him to this this pool to cleanse himself? Um, and, And why does John actually emphasize that the pool means scent? You see, we've been going through different miraculous stories um, uh, of Jesus in the book of John. And we've seen how how Jesus is able to heal um, a man's child from 20 miles away just by saying, hey, go, your son is healed. We've seen how Jesus is able to look at a man that is lame and say, get up and walk. And yet here, he spits into the mud or he spits into the dirt to make mud to put it on his face. So why, why the mud? It's, it's important to, to see that his, his emphasis here, Jesus is never just willy-nilly in what he does. He has intention. And you see, exactly what Jesus did of, of spitting into the mud and into anointing his eyes uh, was, was against the law to do on the Sabbath. It was against the law to do in what these Pharisees have kind of created for themselves, the kind of the man-made laws of how to honor God best. The verbiage used for this making of mud is the exact same thing that they use when it's the kneading of dough, which, again, you cannot do on the Sabbath. Just like the fact that you cannot anoint somebody's eyes, you cannot heal somebody on the Sabbath. It is only when it's a life-threatening situation that someone can actually be healed, yet we know this man's born blind. It's not a life-threatening situation, it's just life as he knows it. You see, Jesus does this to reveal that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the point of Sabbath is rest, to be able to rest in God. And Sabbath rest reveals that we, we are helpless and created by God. And God's the one that creates God's the one that sustains and God's the one that heals. We don't. Jesus provides this man rest or healing from his life of blindness. That's why Jesus uses the dirt, to show. And we we see later that the Pharisees are irate about the reality that it is the Sabbath. Jesus is kind of hitting little nerves to say, Hey, this is more than just a simple healing. And then why the pool? Why does John draw attention to the fact that Siloam means sent? The pool was called sent, or how we would translate it today, being called sent, is because the water actually came through a stream from a distant spring. And so it's called sent because it's actually water that's been sent down. But the connection is made because Jesus wants to compare the pool to himself. You see, as the pool is called scent, Jesus is the scent one. He's the sent one from the Father that actually brings living water. He is the spring of life. And so, as as the man walks into the pool, it's not walking into the pool simply to be cleansed or simply to be healed, but it's truly his representation of Jesus, the sent one, is bringing him life and life to the fullest. And so, we see Jesus heal a man born blind. He comes back seeing. And then, the the bulk of our story is seeing different people's responses to this miracle, to this healing. I and mean, so we're going to look at these three different responses that we see. We see how his neighbors respond to this situation, how the Pharisees respond, and then even how his parents respond. And it's important as we look at this to then look into our own lives as well and to say, okay, when we see the work of God in our lives or the life of our friends, Do we have characteristics that match up with with these people that we will realize throughout this time are actually blind? That's the irony of the story is that a man born blind is the one that actually sees Jesus and who he is, where all these people that are born seeing are blind to the reality of Jesus actually being the son of God. So we're going to read verses 8 through 13 as we look at the neighbor's response. The neighbors and those who have seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. But others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, This man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went ahead and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So the first group of interactions we have is with those of the neighbors, which I think is quite telling to see. These are the people that have seen this man for years, sitting on different corners, begging as they walk. To the temple, he's begging. They probably know him by name at this point. I'm sure he knows many of them by name and by the sound of their voice. I'm sure many of them have given him alms and just helped him along the way. And then one day they're walking by and they see the man that was blind and he sees them. Not only are you a name now, but you're a face You're a figure, he can touch you, smell you, feel you, see all that you are. And and what's what's the response to these people? Some believed that that is the man, but others doubted. Others said, no, that can't be him. It's just somebody that looks like him. I mean, just imagine if over the next year there was a blind man that hung outside of Majestic. And every Sunday, as we come here, we see the man, we say hi to him, we offer him coffee, again, we probably you know throw him a few bucks, take him out to lunch, and then one day he comes seeing. The shock, the awe of that, yet for some of these people, the response still is, no, that's not him, it's just somebody that looks like him. You see, some people, it's just easier to doubt the work of God. It's easier to doubt that these things actually happened, whether it's actually a man receiving his sight or just the work of God in somebody's life or the small little ways that God provides for us day in and day out where we say, nah, is that really God? You know, do we doubt the work of God in our lives and the lives of others? Or do we even doubt the existence of God altogether? I know many classes at Oregon State, being science focused, are gonna push that notion out of your head completely. Or do we try to explain him away? If you're anything like me, this is the category that I so often fall into, where, oh, that's, that's coincidence. Oh, I, I wanna rationalize every situation to the point where is God even part of it anymore? We have to ask ourselves, are we stepping into the light or through our doubt are we actually closing our eyes to the reality of God around us? And then Jesus or and then we move forward to looking at the Pharisees' response, the second response. We see doubt from the neighbors. And what do we see from the Pharisees? We have them broken up into two different sections and I'll read both. Um, And then we'll dive into the parents after that. It's verses 14 through 17. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. They're talking to the blind man. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. And so, upon the first interaction these Pharisees have with the blind man, they're broken up into two camps. One being, There's no way that this man called Jesus can actually be one that is sent from God because he does not honor the Sabbath, he does not follow the laws of Moses, and so therefore, This man is definitely a sinner. This man is definitely not of God. And you've got the other camp saying, well, yes, it was on the Sabbath, but did you see the miracle that was performed? How can we say that this is not of God when, as we know, no one has ever been born blind and received their sight? This has to be of God. And so they're they're pit between each other Having this discussion, they go to his parents and come back one more time to interrogate this man once again. And we'll pick up in verse 24. And so the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, "Give glory to God." We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, "Whether he..." And then he answered, powerful line, "Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know." that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? He answered them, have I told you already and you, ha- you wouldn't listen? Why do you wanna hear again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. But if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. So somehow in this small interaction from having two different camps of kind of butting heads against each other to the second interaction with the man, they've come on a unified front. And they challenge him right off the bat by saying, hey, give glory to God. Which really what they're saying is give glory to God and do not Praise Jesus. Do not give glory to Jesus. You see, they completely separated the two to say, you're either with God or with Jesus, but you can't be with both. And then the man delivers the powerful line. He's like, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But what I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. But that's not satisfying for the Pharisees, they want to push in for more. And so they begin to try to actually trip this man up and start asking him the same kind of questions, hoping that his story changes, hoping his testimony will be altered to the point where they can find fault in what he says, and through that, completely discredit him, completely discredit Jesus. And then I love it because this, it shows that this, this blind man is an intelligent man um, and responds with kind of a cheeky response of, oh, are you asking me because you want to be his disciples too? Obviously knowing that that would just rile them up. And what do we see? We see that they respond with anger. They ultimately respond with ignorance. As this man proclaims the truth that God listens to his people and never has a man that's been born blind received to sight. And yet this man, Jesus, does just that thing. And you're still saying, ah, I don't know where he comes from. He's a sinner. And then they ultimately end with ignorance and anger and completely just saying, hey, you know what? You were born in sin. Get out of the temple and excommunicate him. For the Pharisees, ignorance and anger won the day. It won the day. And as as we look at our lives, as we look at our our life with Jesus, or just the pursuit even of this man that they call Jesus what's what's your response when godly things happen, when miraculous things happen, or when we live our lives, are we such people that we say, "Hey, we live as if we're really too good for God, just like The Pharisees. We we put all of these laws in our own lives, whether they be mandated from God or mandated from from the United States. We put these laws in our life and say, as long as I live according to this, I am I am good. Because that's ultimately what the Pharisees have created. Or do we ultimately just look at Jesus as a good teacher? And yeah, he's got some solid truth, but but he he is a sinner. He's he's not actually the Son of God. Or to use the sight analogy, I think a lot of times uh, it's easy to kind of turn Jesus into our reading glasses of life. And so for the most time, I I don't need my reading glasses on, and I live life as normal. And then when it comes to something serious, when it comes to something where I actually need to be able to dig in, okay, yeah, I'll put on my glasses, I'll put on Jesus and read a little bit, get what I need, and then take out my glasses and put them away and move on. Do we just use Jesus when he's an opportunity for us? Or do we actually believe he is more? Do we actually believe that Jesus can give sight to a blind man? Do we believe that Jesus can give sight to us? And we see the last of the three responses, uh, which is in the middle section that we, we passed over which is that of his parents. In verses 18 through 23, it says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? And how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This is a pretty straightforward narrative that as the Pharisees come to the parents, uh, they really let fear rule the day for them as Pharisees come asking pointed questions was your son born blind who actually healed him and the fact that John makes an emphasis to say the fear was rooted to being kicked out of the synagogues points to the fact in reality that his parents his parents knew who actually healed him they knew the condition of their son they knew the reality that now he sees and who it was They let fear win the day. They let the fear of excommunication ultimately dictate their response. You see, his parents were people that knew the truth, but were not bold and willing to step over that line to be a courageous witness for their son, to be a courageous witness ultimately for Jesus and what he's done and who he is. And so as we look again at this this third responder, I challenge us to look at our own lives and say, okay, how do I respond? Do I let fear rule the day? Do I hide the truth of Jesus and what he's done in my life or what he's done in the life of others because I'm worried about being ridiculed or I'm worried about being judged? When I go to a coffee shop and hang out with my friends and we're talking about Jesus, do we kind of talk quietly because we're worried about what those around us will actually think? Or do we not hang out at a coffee shop at all because we don't want to talk about Jesus in a public setting? Do we hide the truth because we're worried about being rejected just as the parents feared? What are our responses to these three characters? When we see miraculous things happen when our lives are transformed and the lives of those around us are transformed, how do we respond? Yet the the beauty of this passage is it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with feeling kind of the weightiness of, oh, maybe I don't respond how I should. But, But Jesus goes on to actually proclaim the reason for this miracle and the reason for him being here. And that's going to be in this last section where, when we see the light of the world shine, you receive sight or you are blinded. When you see the light of the world shine, you receive sight or you are blinded. We ought to realize that with the past few weeks and the weeks to come as well, as we look at these miraculous signs, yes, there's so much power in what Jesus actually does, but there's just as much power, if not more, in, in and what, what he does actually says. There's profoundness to each of these miracles. You see, this points to a spiritual meaning far beyond just the physical healing of this one man. Jesus did not come into the world to give sight to one man, but he came to give sight and light to the world. And so in this last section, we really see that we move from a physical blindness to a spiritual blindness. We move from physical healing to spiritual healing. The miracle of the blind man was not so much about restoring his physical sight, though that importance, but it's actually about restoring his spiritual sight. Because we know that a blind man can get into the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus even says it's better to pluck one eye out than to not enter the kingdom of God. Yet we see very heavily here that if we are blind spiritually, I don't even think we want heaven. We won't even be pursuing that. And so first we get to see how Jesus responds to this man once he finds him. And we see the beauty and the call for us to actually receive Sight to receive the light of the world. In verses 35 through 38, it says, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, in this section, as we look at this man moving really from a physical blindness to a physical sight, we also see just a spiritual blindness to spiritually seeing Jesus for who he is. In, this verse, in these verses, we see some components and markers of someone who can truly see, whose eyes have been opened to the light of the world. And it is important to first note that that section starts out with having found him. Jesus intentionally went out of his way and sought that man. See, remember the man had never seen Jesus before. He had the mud on his eyes and left to go wash himself. And so his interaction with Jesus here is really the first time that he sees Jesus. He doesn't know who he's talking to. Yet we see an element of divine initiative that God goes forward and finds this man. And again, this story is so much more profound than this one man that is blind, but this story is for all of us. And just as Jesus went and sought this man out, he seeks each and every one of you out and says, hey, I'm willing to put mud on your eyes. I'm willing to wash you and give you sight to see more clearly. See, in John 15, Jesus says, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. That's the beauty of the light of the world stepping into our world, into our life. And then we see Jesus seek out this man and ask him, do you believe in the Son of God? which in this context, the question is really asking um, not do you believe that the Son of Man exists, but rather it's asking do you place your trust in the Son of Man? And we see the man's response showing true elements of faith, saying I'm not quite sure who that man is, but show him to me so that I may believe. Another component of somebody who can now see Elements of faith present in their life. And Jesus says, it is he who you are speaking to. I am the son of man. And how does this man respond? He responds by saying, Lord, I believe. And then immediately, immediately began worshiping Jesus one of the reasons I love this story is it shows the beautiful progression that this begging man, this blind man that can now see went through. Because if I remember at the very start of the story when they asked who was this man, he said, oh, it's the man named Jesus. And then it progresses along as he gains understanding to then when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, oh, it's, it's a prophet. That's who Jesus is, a prophet. To then progressing to the end of the story where he comes face to face with Jesus, the light of the world, and he says, Lord, not sir, but Lord, I believe. Spiritual sight leads to a confession of Jesus as Savior, as Jesus as Lord of our life, and then naturally leads into a life of worship, a life of proclaiming who Jesus is. You see, this man went from being blind to seeing physically, but he also went from being blind spiritually to seeing spiritually, which is so much more powerful. You see, Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a man named Jesus, but he is Lord, Lord of our life and Lord of this world. And then Jesus has his last interaction um, in this section with, with the Pharisees. And there's some beauty in this, but there's also a lot of weight. There's a lot of heaviness in this section. And Jesus said, in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus says, I- I've come to give sight to the blind and ultimately to blind those that think they see. What Jesus is really saying to these Pharisees is, if they commit, I mean if they admit their blindness then Jesus will heal them by forgiving them of their sins. But since they insist that they can see that the world that they see it is the correct way where Jesus has nothing to do with it, well, he's like, then your guilt remains. And you're still actually stuck not seeing. You're stuck with shutters over your eyes. I mean, this is, this is insane, These Pharisees are standing before the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And what do they say? You're a sinner. Lord of Lords and King of Kings, so you're a sinner. They're completely blinded. Yet we all know they can physically see. I mean, to summarize Jesus, he's saying, You have the law, you have the prophets, the covenants, you have everything the promises, the Old Testament. You even have me. You have my very words. You've seen my miracles, and you have no excuse. Yes, you're blind to your own sin, but no, you're not blind to the truth. You're blind to your own sin, and that's the very thing that's holding you back from Jesus. Saying that's the very thing that's holding you back, that's maintaining you in to your guilt. And so, the challenge that we have this morning is to check our eyes, to really sit down and check our eyes, to go to that test and say, okay, can I see or am I actually blind? Have I been psyching myself out this whole time to believe that I can see when really I'm actually missing the big picture, the grand reality of life? Uh, When I was in the first or second grade, uh, at that point in school, like you definitely have stuff you learn, but you spend a lot of the day like doing drawing activities and stuff, which I excelled at, or so I thought. So we would have a lot of these activities that revolved around drawing, um, and, and a lot of them were kind of maps that were color-coded or different things like that, you know, and being a first, second grader that was dedicated to, to doing schoolwork and pleasing my teacher and my mother, uh, I was very adamant in doing these activities. And so I would do them and turn them in, and um, over a period of time, I kept getting, uh, I guess you don't get like A's and B's, but I got like... Not quite checks, you know. It was like a little minus mark, and and it became apparent over time that for some reason I I struggled um, being able to fill out these maps accurately. Uh, that sometimes my colors got got a little off, or what I thought was blue was not actually blue, or what I thought was green was not actually green, um, which is quite Unsettling for a first or second grader, and so finally, my mom um, and my first second grade teacher, uh, they got together, and they're like, "Hey, Davy, we're gonna test you uh, because you might be colorblind." Super fun reality, um, and that really, like, that's the, the reality of being colorblind is that uh, you you miss out on some of the hues uh, of colors out there, and so you don't actually see the grand picture. Um, and so, if you've never taken a colorblind test before, uh, we're about to do a few of those, and so I apologize, or maybe you can applaud me at the end. This might be the first time you're realizing you're colorblind, uh, so sorry it happened here. Uh, but so, this is what a test looks like, um, where I first came up, and I was super stoked, because I was like, oh, dude, 12, got it, um, which I hope you guys all see the 12, too. If not, you might actually be just blind, so... And then move to the next one. Uh, then I looked at this one, uh, and I was like, wow, that's a lot of circles. <laughs> um, but what, what number is present in that? 42. Okay, sweet. Thank you. Did anybody not see that? Oh, see, we're learning. Okay, next one. Again, I look at that, and I, I see some green, but I have no idea what it actually says. What number is this? 74. This is a side note, but as I was preparing for this last night, I was trying to find, um, find ones to do, and I looked at 74 about five or six times with my wife, not knowing it was the same one, and every time I was like, hey, what does that number say? So <laughs> I really sweet. am blind. And then the last one. What does that say? Five. five. Sweet. Thank you. Thank um, you. So that's just a small, small little snippet of what I experienced as a first or second grader um, of realizing for the first time that, that I am colorblind. Um, but the, where this comes into play when we think of spiritual blindness is that prior to being in first or second grade, I just thought this was the way the world was supposed to look like. That when I saw a rainbow, that's what it was supposed to look like. That these colors, my lack of being able to match, those kind of things were just what life was. Um, it wasn't until I actually came and had this test uh, that I was willing to admit that I couldn't actually see. That part of, part of my reality of life was, was, was wrong. And it's the same thing with being spiritually blind, is a lot of times we don't necessarily see what we're missing. But the thing is, reality of whether we don't see it or not, as you saw in those pictures, whether I see a five in that last picture or not, doesn't change the fact that there's a five in that picture. I can't just say that, I don't see it. it, doesn't exist there's still a 5 and that's that's really the reality of when Jesus comes into this world Jesus is that 5 Jesus is that 42 Jesus is that 74 he is the one that has been there the whole time and for some of us we're just saying hey i'm not ready to actually go and take that test and that's okay, but I hope that someday you willingly dive into what that might look like. And for some of you, this is, this is the time in your life where you really have to look and say, okay, I see Jesus, I see that five, but how present is he actually in my life? Am I allowing the light of the world to actually step into those dark places in my life. Because that's the reality. Where light is, darkness is not. The light comes in and pushes out all darkness. See, if we ever want to be fully healed, it starts with admitting that we're blind. If I can't admit that I'm blind, I can't actually pursue sight. And for some of us in this room, we're like, hey, I fully see, as I look at those pictures, I see the grand scale. Of, yes, I see that number, but more importantly, I see Jesus in all aspects of life. But for some of us here, we're struggling with that. Maybe it's we turn Jesus, like I said, into those reading glasses that we just take on or off. But do we see the light of the world? Do we live in the light? And if your answer is no, the beauty is there is hope for you. You don't have to stay blind. And that's ultimately the beauty of the gospel message. It's the reality that Jesus, being the light of the world, actually came. He came and lived life with us. And he, as we see, He shined light everywhere He went. He was physically healing people, spiritually healing people. And then those that were blind ultimately took him to the cross and killed him, thinking that, okay, with this, we will destroy this light. Yet the beauty, like I said, is where light goes, darkness cannot. And so through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he actually defeated darkness. He swept darkness out of the way so that all of us can step into the light of the world, where light shines, darkness fades. When the light of the world shines, we either see or we are blinded. And so as we conclude, we have to think through the reality of checking our eyes, to be like, are my eyes set upon Jesus? As I go through my day, is it every time I look at the world I see glimmers of Jesus. Every time I see light, I see Jesus. Or is it completely just putting shutters over our eyes to the reality of God at work? You see, this story started with a blind man. And in a sense, this story also ends with blind men. But it's of a worse kind. It's of the spiritual kind. The story starts with physical blindness of one man and ends with spiritual blindness of many. Yet the story does not have to be ours. We do not have to be the blind man. If we look at the huge meta narrative of scripture, uh, we see in Genesis 1 that God proclaimed light into existence. In Genesis 1 verse 3, he said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. That's the beginning. That's Genesis 1, the light shining over all the world. And there's a lot of mess in the middle. But as we get to the very end, as we look at Revelation 21, we see this said, And this city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. That's what God is calling us into, to step into the light of the world, where we get to bask in the glory of God shining upon us, and where the lamp is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus wants to heal each and every one of us, to give us eyes to see clearly, to give us eyes to see the light of the world. Lord God,